Yeah, the, the sense that I have is that whatever this reality is we inhabit, it is infinitely dynamic. So to think we could ever put a static destination or term to it with finality oh. is just... It's an interesting question. Think about the era of continental, intercontinental exploration. So people don't ask this question enough. What was the last landmass ever discovered? Major landmass. Are you going to bring up St. Helena again right now? I'm just kidding. I always try to, but uh, I was just conversing with somebody who's been in quarantine for nine or 10 days at uh, St. Helena this morning. It's some frozen land off of Siberia. So it wasn't in the middle of nowhere. It was, in fact, you know, relatively close to Europe, which was doing a lot of the exploring. Mm. And when we found that... Um, something came to a close. I think checkers, for example, has been solved. Uh, yeah. Perfect information. There's an optimal strategy. Yeah. Yeah. There's an optimal strategy and there's a lookup table, at least in principle. Yeah. Um, for perfect checkers. It's like black. So things, well, okay. Well, Depending on the rules, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. How many decks, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And whether you know how many decks and all this. Right, stuff. right. But I would say that um, certain things do come to an end. And I think that one of the most interesting is that I think physics at its most fundamental level is about to come to an end. That's very unpopular with the zeitgeist. Okay, this one, that's difficult for me to accept because using your same analogy, a game of perfect information like chess. I yeah. mean, so you think, Chess would come to an end before physics, wouldn't it? Sorry, it's, you're making an excellent point. Let me be as clear as, as I should have been. There are two parts of physics. And the part of physics that you're talking about, which is the consequences of the rules, is nowhere near coming to an end and may be provable that it will never come to an end. Mm -hmm. Because how... How would a computer predict its own behavior? You'd need something larger than the computer. So there will always be a mystery as to what is about to happen next, even if you know all the rules and even if all the rules are deterministic. Right. Combinatorial explosion, something like that. Certainly. Yeah. And then there's the question about are the rules of chess infinite? Mm -hmm. So let's take chess, which may be finite because there's a the game ends if you make so many rule moves without something happening. So there, there are ways of limiting chess so you don't chase. Yeah. You know, have a couple of knights chasing each other at, <laughs> into infinity. Yeah. Um, how long would it take you to figure out all the rules just by watching chess? I don't know. You know, like very quickly you'd figure out some basic stuff. And then there'd be things like castling en passant, promoting a piece on the final rank, you know, weird. There's, there's a whole subject called chess jokes. I don't know if you've ever seen this where, you know, you're, you're like some chess problem, but it relies on some very uh, sketchy interpretation of the rules, the exact rules. Like the dumbest of these, which is still funny something like white to move and made in 27. You're like, what? Well, 
The only way it's possible is if every move is forced because nobody could do the combinatorial explosion. So more or less, you only have one legal move to begin with and black only has one legal move to respond. And you find out that if you follow all of these um, one legal moves in exactly 27 moves, the game ends. All right, chess joke, ha ha ha. Um, we don't think about the difference between learning the rules and learning the consequences. And I think that the rules are about to come to an end. Mm. This is a theory of everything about just at least the physical rules. That's, that's what we, it's misnamed for exactly that reason. Mm. It's a theory of the rules, not a theory of the consequences. Mm. That's what a theory of everything means. Okay. The, the other thing that came to mind, I love this concept of meaning. So thank you for taking us down that path. The, Einstein said something to the effect that the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. Um, and you, this concept of that I discovered, oh, the title of the book, the the Eternal Golden Braid. I don't know if you've heard of that book. Um, anyways, concept, yes, the concept of isomorphism mm. is that related to meaning? I mean, as I understood it, it was like the the deterministic relationship between one pattern and another, something like that. Well, let's do an isomorphism on your ship. Let's do it. Okay. What do you think about multiplication versus addition? Uh, so, for example, I have the real numbers under addition. There's an identity element. There's an additive inverse. I can take the negative of a number to get another number. So if I add them, I'll get the identity element, which is zero. And I have an operation called addition, right? Okay. I have inverses. I've got an addition to combine two objects to get a third. And I've got a particularly distinguished object, which I can add to anything and doesn't change. Mm -hmm. Now I notice that under multiplication, that can't be true for the real numbers because zero yeah. has no inverse. One over zero doesn't work. So I say, okay, what if I restrict myself to the positive real numbers and avoid zero and, and all the negatives? So is there an operation that keeps me within the um, positive reals that extends this concept of multiplication? Yeah, I just multiply two positive numbers, I get a third positive number. Positive times positive is positive. Do I have an identity element? Yeah, one. Under multiplication, one is the identity. Do I have an inverse? Sure, I can invert. As long as I get rid of zero, I can take something to the negative first power. And then if I multiply by my original number, I get the multiplicative identity. Mm. So that's interesting. I've got positive reals under multiplication. I've got all of the reals under addition that have very similar sounding properties. And you have a crazy idea. Is that the same thing? Like exactly the same thing? Well, if I take an exponential of a real number, I always get a positive real number. Mm -hmm. And if I take the exponent, exponential of A plus B, I get the exponential of A times the exponential of B. Mm -hmm. So it converted addition into multiplication 
Does it have an inverse? Can I undo it? Yeah, that's the logarithm. The natural logarithm gets you, and, and it undoes multiplication and turns it into addition. So then you realize, oh, the exponential and the natural logarithm are what we would call group isomorphisms between those two structures, the real numbers under addition and the positive reals under multiplication are exactly the same structure hidden from you. Mm -hmm. That's a great example of an isomorphism. Wow. It wasn't obvious to you at the beginning that they were the same structure. Wow. I Wake never... up and smell the math. Yeah, that is so freaking cool. So, so what is then, okay, if that is, there's an isomorphism through the logarithmic function between the logarithm is an isomorphism from the positive reals under multiplication to all real numbers under addition. Okay. And the exponential is an isomorphism that goes oh, the other direction. Got it. Okay. So that is that isomorphism is a transformational relationship or deterministic relationship. What is that? Well, we would call it a homomorphism. Okay. And when you get into something called category theory, you have a, you have morphisms of morphisms, like it gets very meta and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. these things are called functors. So for example, you can find that you can replace a theory of geometric objects with a theory of algebraic objects through a functor that preserves isomorphisms and homomorphisms. So morphisms of morphisms. And this has become very popular recently in uh, computer science. So, and you, you see these things like, uh, well, we could get into meta class hacking and things in the context of computer programming, but I don't, I don't know if that's the best use of our time. We have a, um, we encounter the same structures fundamentally in different guises. Mm -hmm. And so it's about stripping off the artifice of the presentation and saying, are these things simply different? Like Clark Kent isn't Superman, but there is a being in that universe that has two different instantiations, one of which is called Clark Kent and one of which is called Superman that aren't apparently obvious to the residents of this comic universe because they never figure out that, you know, it's like, the famous line, you know, have you ever noticed that you never see Clark Kent and Superman in the same place at the same time? So that sort of um, stripping away the ways in, in which things are presented to understand the underlying reality. Like I'll give you another very simple one. The number of ways that a, um, let's say a crystal cube, crystal sculpture, if you've ever seen where they fracture a crystal internal at precise points and you have see a design. It comes to you in a velvet box slightly larger than the cube, a cubicle box holding a cubicle piece of art. How many ways are there of placing that cube into that box? Uh, it's fitted, right? Tightly yeah, it's fitted. fitted. Okay, so uh, four, 
Six. Well, there's six ways to put one six face sides. on the bottom of the box. Okay. And yeah, then there are four okay. possible rotations. So four times six are 24. Okay. Yeah. On the other hand, if I have four people at a dinner party at a square table, let's call them Bob, Carol, Ted, and Alice. Um, how many ways are there of seating them at that table? Well, four possibilities for the first seat, three for the second, two for the third, and whoever's last has to sit in one place. So four times three is 12, times two is 24, times one is 24. So those are two separate um, collections of, of things you can do. You can rotate a box, uh, rotate a cube in a box, or you could rotate and permute people around a dinner table. Mm -hmm. Question, are, are the symmetries that affect those the same symmetries? Like a clock has 20 that has 24 positions on it for the hours of a day. It's a, a, an army clock. The rotation, the cyclical rotations of that object are not the same as the permutations of the people around the table. Right. Or the cube. But is the people are the people around the table the same as the as the set of permutations? Is that permutation set the same as the way of putting a cube in a velvet box that is just big enough to fit it. And that's a puzzle for you. Um, but it's an example of that would be a question in mathematics that you might be posed. Are these things isomorphic? They came to me in very different guises. How would I say that they're the same thing? It's quite tricky, actually, that question. Well, I mean, it seems like one, because the cube, at least you're rotating across three axes. Shows it because there's a false start. Like the cube looks like a table a little bit. They both have yeah. kind of, there's a feeling of fourness there. Yeah. But you'll find that that's harder to make work than you think. Is that the right answer to both of those? There's 20 or 24 for each. Well, there's 24. I've given you three different sets. The set of rotations of a 24 of a clock with 24 hashes. Yeah. The number of ways I can put a crystal cube in a velvet box that's just yeah. bigger than it. And the number of ways I can permute four dinner guests at a single square table. Is the four dinner guests, is that a factorial? Was that? Well, it was a it was a we 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 did the cardinality count using a factorial. Okay. But right? the answer is 24 for the people at the table. That's the order of the group. That's the size of the symmetry. So all four, mm -hmm. all three of these collections of symmetries have the same size. They're all 24, order 24. But their internal structure might be different. That so is... I'll tell you, yeah, but just when you when, when you're just the way I sort of showed you that you you had enough knowledge to know that the exponential and the natural logarithm were actually group isomorphisms, mm -hmm. symmetry isomorphisms. You just didn't think in those terms. Right. So now you have a situation where you could actually, given enough time, solve the puzzle of are the two, which of these are the same structure and which of these are different. But it, it's not the case that I expect you to be able to do it off the cuff. It's subtle. And it's a, that's an example of what math research looks like. Yeah, that's super interesting. So is, 
what I'm, I guess I'm trying to connect here in my mind, this <coughs> ontological notion of meaning with this mathematical notion of meaning. And I'm also thinking here, is, is that how meaning hides how you just described? It comes in multiple guises. Is it, uh, it's, it's blanketed under these, these isomorphisms or homomorphisms. And then my deeper question here would be, does this ever get into metaphysical reality? We're talking about like the platonic realm of forms where we see different, we see patterns in nature or reality that are repeating or self-similar across different scales, kind of like fractal or, or other things. Um, Would that indicate that there's some domain outside of space and time imprinting itself in space and time? If that question makes any sense. It does in a weird way. It may not be a good question, but it does make sense. (laughs) Doing my best here. Well, no, you know, it's like when we say that the universe is expanding and every smart kid says into what, Yeah. then we don't get a good answer. So that's like, is there something that in which this universe sits? Do we have a universe inside of a multiverse? Do we have a universe inside of a simulation? Do we have a low dimensional universe inside of a higher dimensional structure? You know, I'm just trying to say these are different versions of your question to me. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how to get at this exactly. One way I, I might approach your question is to say, when you, you saw the movie 2001. Uh, yeah. Oh, the space, space odyssey. Yeah. 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 Do you know what the meaning of the monolith is? No. Do you know that it must be meaningful? It seems meaningful in the movie. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So whether or not you can figure out the meaning is a different question. But then let's, let's look at a really interesting way in which screenwriters play with this. There's the concept of a MacGuffin. Is that a meaningful concept to you? No. So a MacGuffin is something that may not, we may not understand what its meaning is. Um, but it propels the story forward. So for example, if you know the movie Pulp Fiction, yeah. um, when Vincent and Jules enter the room of these sort of college boys who are in way over their head, they want to know where is the suitcase? And the, uh, you see, Jewel says to Vincent, are we happy? Vincent like looks at this glow. There's like a, obviously a light bulb or something in the suitcase for the suit, for the prop. And is it uranium? Is it gold? We don't know what it is. Um, the suitcase is meaningful, but it's not necessarily shared with the audience. Just the way you may not understand what the Maltese Falcon is about, or if I can give my favorite example of this, because you mentioned things hidden since the beginning of the world, which is Rene Girard and and the issue of mimetic desire. Mm -hmm. There's a wonderful film by Antonioni called Blow Up. And it's got a blistering performance by the Yardbirds happening in some sort of Canopy Street 60s swinging London scene. And the protagonist enters this nightclub and the Yardbirds are playing a song, which I don't quite understand. The lyrics are different, but it's train kept a rolling all night long. And I don't know, it was Jeff Beck 
something and he starts having problems with his guitar and the amplifier and he gets really pissed off and he ends up breaking his guitar to try to sort out his problem with the amplifier. And he, nobody in the nightclub is at all interested in anything. They're just bored and watching the yardbirds, which is mm -hmm. dumb. I, I would think it's one of the coolest things I'd seen in my life. He takes the neck of the guitar that snapped off and he hurls it into the audience. And at that one moment, everyone dives and there's a huge fight over the object. And our hero actually manages to beat off all these other people and wrest the guitar neck away and bring it into the alley. Right, so the, the music performance had no interest to anyone. The guitar neck had interest to everyone. Our hero wins the guitar neck through a physical battle. And he gets out to the street and he looks at it and he realizes that it has no meaning. And he throws it into the street. And somebody who'd seen some of this went and picks it up. They look at it and they realize it has no meaning. And they drop it into the street. I remember going to the Soviet Union in 1989 to visit my relatives. And suddenly people were lining up. And they said, quick, let's get in line. And we said, for what? And they said, we don't know. Interesting, right? Things were scarce. Turned out to be laundry detergent that day. So meaning was assigned before it was affixed to an object. How did they know what they just, who? Let's imagine you live in a world in which there are rolling shortages of different objects. Mm. And a line, a queue starts to form. Uh, you know that whatever it is that's forming the queue is very likely to have been scarce up until recently. Now, maybe it's diapers and you don't have a child. So you find out, I don't have any use for these. Or maybe you buy them anyway because everything that's scarce matters and you right. can sell it to somebody or give it to somebody. It doesn't matter. So this is mimesis basically. Well, you see, mimesis is also about compressing competition. Mm. You see, if you try to figure out who's the fastest guitar player, like maybe at some point it was Yingwei Malmsteen. I don't know. Is it important that Yingwei Malmsteen can play faster than other people? Well, it depends. If females are conducting a competition for mates, which is something that happens in some species and, and not others, they tend not to want a bunch of creative entries because they can't tell, well, who's better than who else? Mm -hmm. So for example, bowerbirds collect the rarest color in some subspecies which is blue. Blue is very rare in the environment. So you decide that you're going to hold a scavenger hunt for the color blue. Is blue meaningful? No. Is the scarcity of blue meaningful? Yes, because it gives you one competition. Mm. What if one guy was collecting red and another guy was collecting blue? And then you'd say, I don't know who's better. Mm -hmm. How am I going to make a decision? But if you can get everybody to want the same thing, like, you know, the whole question about, well, he has 12 houses, but this other guy had 17 houses. So I married the guy with 17 houses. Well, did you really need, I mean, you couldn't get by with 12 houses? Oh, no, no, no. I just wanted to know the relative quality of the mates. 17 is bigger than 12. Ergo, I'm using that as a proxy. I don't, I don't even need more than one house. Right. But houses are non-standard. So 
more accurately would have been square footage or something like that. There you go. Right. Yeah. And then you, then you get like the Zestimate yeah. on Zillow <laughs> Zestimate, yeah. right? Because this is what money does. Money tends to take apples and oranges mm-hmm. and puts them in to a unit of currency. Yeah. So you can compare everything. That's why money is so much better than so many other things because of its fungibility. It is the thing that equalizes, you know, that, that house in, uh, in London versus the much bigger house in North Dakota. How am I going to know whether the bigness of the house in North Dakota is enough to compensate for its location? I'm going to look at something like the price. You need a universal language like mathematics too. Well, you'll try, you'll try. And then that language will cause some distortions. Right. And you know, what, what if the idea is that, you know, you hold out for the guy with 17 homes over the guy with 12 homes and you miss your fertility window. Mm. Right. So you have to balance all sorts of different things. What if one of them can tell a joke and the other one can't, and one is kind and the other is cruel. So ultimately these things don't get you out. Mimesis isn't powerful enough to reduce everything to one dimensional competition but it's powerful enough to reduce many things to one dimensional competition. Interesting. Okay. I'm only halfway through that book right now. It's mind blowing to say the least. Do have you read it? And do you buy into the thesis there of, I guess, man being the mimetic animal and that giving rise to institutions and ritual and all of this? Well, there's a problem about how do you form an initial preference for something? So, um, somebody has to care about something sooner or later. It's, mm. I think it's an overblown, wonderful thesis. And I think that Gerard's fearlessness, I mean, you have to appreciate also that the, uh, my good friend, employer, uh, and billionaire Peter Thiel lives by this book. Hmm. And I think he thinks that Gerard helped him become rich beyond, uh, beyond imagination. And I think that's, it's a wonderful concept that a, you know, I often say that Peter is not the world's richest person, but he's the world's richest applied philosopher. Hmm. And sometimes somebody gets something out of a particular individual. Nobody else can discern like George Soros got something out of Karl Popper. The rest of us must have missed. Hmm. Right. So it's not just a question, but is the book a good book, but is it, is it the book for you? Yeah. It, Taleb is a big Popper fan as well, if I'm not mistaken. Well, Taleb, uh, I haven't thought about that. Taleb is, I don't want to represent Nassim because Nassim is a friend of mine who I think very highly of. Now that said, I've been very lucky to have had the benefit of his one-on-one interaction. Mm-hmm. And I often think that he's better one-on-one by a long shot than he is in groups. He's better in, in book form. The problem is, is that so much of what he has to say is easily is adjacent to things that he isn't saying. So if you remember the Kathy Newman interview of Jordan Peterson. So what you're really saying is 
you know, Nassim spends his life being misinterpreted. Right. And so he's built an entire personality around imbecile, idiot. <laughs> he's just constantly calling people names. And I don't think that's really um, the key to who he is. I think he's a guy who wants to say subtle things that gets hurt as saying stupid things or mean things. Or, I don't know. Yeah. And he's just tired of it. So he's very tough to talk about because people feel like they know him. And I don't really think that they do. No, I don't claim to know him at all, but I am a huge fan of his writing. Um, so I, I have to be careful. I ended up in a Bitcoin room about Nassim. Oh. We're very, very friendly about it. And then when I left, they they're like went after me. And then, you know, we've, we've been through some stuff, um, Bitcoiners and me, and we're, I think we're in a better place. But I think that this issue about suspicion and misinterpretation and all this kind of stuff is really important that when people don't have a chance to hear, they tend to make the assumption uh, that they do know what somebody's saying because there's nothing new to say. And this is what I call snap to grid intellectualism. Uh, okay. Snap to grid intellectualism. The idea is that um, you just assume that I've heard everything before. And this is one of the big problems with the Bitcoiners is, is that they've had so many Again, I don't want to put the, the fault on the Bitcoiners. They've seen certain patterns so often that they've got meme templates. I just heard about Bitcoin and I'm here to fix it. That's one of them. <laughs> this is very similar to the Taleb dynamic you just described, actually. Bitcoiners well, have heard all the same, same tropes or same misinterpretations of the Bitcoin thesis so many times they become very dismissive. Well, this is, and this goes back to your earlier point, Robert, where you were saying, when do you, when do you automate something? So in mm. general, what happens when I've heard a thousand people make the exact same cognitive mistake and the thousand first person says something very similar and I just brush it off. You economize. Like, I don't think you heard what I had to say. Oh, really? <laughs> you know, this is where this like, who oh, Eric is gauge theory going to do it all. You know, it's like, yes, it, it really well. Give it time. So we have but to automate, you, but we have to be careful what we automate. Because well, that no, can, you have to recognize you're going to be in type two, type one and type two error. There are going to be mm -hmm. times when you've automated something that you could, you shouldn't have. Mm -hmm. and there are going to be times when you were carrying around the idea. No, I have to listen to everybody. And then in fact, that's a giant waste of your time. So it's the balancing of type one and type two error. I don't get angry with people who make type one and type two error. I get angry when people don't allow for the idea that type one and type two error might be present. Right. That's a great way to put it. I've never heard type one, type two error. Oh yeah. Is that yours? Where did that come? Is that. It's a standard of statistics where you include something that you should have excluded or excluded something that you should have included <sighs> when you're drawing a decision boundary. Overfitting say. or underfitting something like that. It could be that. I mean, you know, but the idea is, um, you know, you could have a, should I have thrown that point out because it was an error or should I have included that point because it was telling me that my model is wildly off? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Right. But it's a very general thing about situations in which one has to balance between, let's say, false positives and false negatives on a pre pregnancy test or. Yeah. This makes me think of Carl Jung, which I'm, reciting indirectly through Peterson. And he said, the fool is the precursor to the savior. And then Persig talked about this too, that the job of a culture was to figure out which one you are, right? Because 
we're constantly trying to break new ground and learn new things, but quite often that experimental process produces a lot of errors. So we don't know if an individual is a renegade, you know, madman, or if he's a groundbreaking philosopher or something like that. Usually both. Hmm. Um, I mean, I think a lot of that has to do with is somebody's mind relatively free. Hmm. Somebody with an open mind is going to make a lot of certain kinds of errors. And somebody with a closed mind is going to make different errors because they're sort of dedicated to listening or not listening. And this is part of the problem is it's very hard to get people to recognize that there are dialectics mm-hmm. that are supposed to be resolved into tensions and preceding resolutions. And I get a lot of this. Would you pick a side? <laughs> would you pick, would you shut up? I mean, it's just the extent to which everything is red team versus blue team. Right. Sometimes I think we should remove all sports from school. <laughs> I think sports are fine, not against them, but God damn it. I mean, really everything is just like the home team versus the other guys. I don't know. Don't you think that polarization has something to do with the, I mean, maybe I'm just putting on the blinders here, but it seems like uh, political polarization and fiat currency expansion have tracked pretty nicely, at least in the U S yeah. Although, you know, again, it's funny. We've taught everyone that correlation does not imply causation so that they reflexively recite it and therefore nothing implies causation. Yeah. So, you know, my counter argument, which they don't like is, yeah, it usually does. That doesn't mean it always does. It just means that all of you guys have been taught to re- recite that like your Stepford wives. Correlation does not imply causation. Oh, do I get a cookie? Do I get a fish? Do I get some good thing? Mimesis, once again. (laughs) Well, it's just, you know, it's a good point taken to a completely absurd. So with respect to that, I would say that the inability to pay a dividend in our society that's sufficient, I think is a causal link in the lack of trust and the increase in polarization where we, we we've tied our fortunes to a team. Mm-hmm. I don't have the same sense that I can thrive individually. I need to be on either team red or team blue. If I don't want team, you know, it's like, two, it's two gangs divvying up a neighborhood. It's exactly like, right. I really wasn't thinking about being a blood or a crip. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you're like, well, that's not the way this neighborhood is looking at the moment. Pick a side. That's why we're recruiting you to the orange bloods, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I think I've done pretty well by you guys, but uh, you, you be the judge. Um, I think that I'm, I'm the best friend you guys will have without actually being one of you. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. 
led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. Earlier, you mentioned these four terms, um, truth, meaning, fitness, grace. We went down the rabbit hole of meaning, which was a very yep. interesting and enlightening discussion. But what I would now like to ask you about is grace. Mm. How do we define grace? How does it fit into um, that four-term model that you laid out? Interesting question. I mean, if you, and, you know, let's just take, we were talking about the Godfather earlier. Um, grace is something that Michael Corleone tends to see drained out of his life. You're watching the transformation of a person who's kind of a straight arrow coming from a corrupt family. He's gone to college. He served in the army. He's fought with valor. He's got a wonderful girlfriend. He's not his family. But then as he understands the calculus of survival, that is fitness and the meaning and importance of truth, um, and the meaning of family and all of these things. He ends up killing his sister's husband. He ends up killing his own brother. He's engaged in, you know, killing uh, very close associates um, of, of his, if there's any whiff of betrayal. And it's this quality that's sort of difficult to, to sort of pin down if you're not a religious person, but it's kind of a sort of, somebody gave you an opportunity to advance your fitness, to follow the truth, and that your life would continue to have meaning, but you'd be a son of a bitch if you actually just went down that path. You have to ask yourself, is it worth it to do things that are really not graceful, even if there's a lot of reason to do them? So is this related to morality Ethics, versus morality, practicality, sure. the tension between the well, two. The, the interesting thing is that morality and ethics stem out of a competitive need to defeat other groups. So yes. if you have prisoners dilemmas, for example, um, a group that can defeat a prisoner's dilemma, all things being equal, will tend to outcompete a group that is functioning totally on self-interest, mm -hmm. narrow self-interest. And so ethics starts life as in-group ethics, you know, making sure that you have enough stake uh, at my table is not about the benefit of the cow. It's mm -hmm. about your benefit because you're part of my in-group. And how we treat each other and whether or not we are willing to accept that life is red of tooth and claw or whether we say maybe there's something that isn't encoded into nature that because we are smarter, we can outwit the Darwinian competition, the sort of Hobbesian nightmare. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of beauty, um, that kind of, of grace, I don't know how to call it. I think the reason that I threw it in in part was that we're uncomfortable as secularists. 
we're not comfortable talking about grace if we're not uh, in a house of worship. We're not comfortable really believing in ethics. You'll, you'll find that right now, very few people believe in ethics um, in a big way, because in fact, ethics hasn't been paying a dividend properly. And when ethics pays a dividend, everybody understands that there's a benefit from behaving ethically. And again, ethics starts as in-group ethics. Mm -hmm. So for example, the code of Omerta in La Cosa Nostra of silence is not a pro-social stance. It's for the benefit of the internal group, not the benefit of the world. But now my question is like, you and I are fellow countrymen. So I have a duty to you that I have, which is above my duty to a Guatemalan. It's not that the Guatemalan is any better or worse than you. They might be better than you, but that's not my affiliation. I have to concern myself with my family, my countrymen, my co-religionists, people who share my ideals. And that in-group sense of ethics may or may not be extendable to the full group. It may or may not work for all human beings. I have different morality, different ethics based on whether I'm talking about my family or let's say, you know, my people or my countrymen. And I think that we have to try to figure out, um, given how horrid nature can be and how, how revulsed we are when we see her operating logically, but ruthlessly, um, you know, just very simple examples. Um, you know, you have a situation in which uh, we talked about like, sexual cannibalism earlier Mm. that makes sense in the wild that a protein starved female might eat her mate in order to nourish her young Mm -hmm. but you'd be horrified if that were happening in humans interesting so sorry go ahead you know at some point i took a cab ride with somebody who had been through uh cambodia's uh bloody conflict and for whatever reason he chose to confide in me as to what he had instructed his men to do to make them an effective fighting force and it involved cannibalism they wouldn't carry enough food for themselves so they'd have to kill the enemy and then which parts of the enemy were tasty and all this kind of stuff and i thought you're advertising that you're shrewd that you're fit that there was meaning to your struggle because you were on the same team as your, as your troop, but you engaged in something so horrid that I don't really care about anything else than what you told me. You're just, you're the worst kind of human being I could possibly imagine because here you are in San Francisco offering me a ride and you're still proud of how clever you are. Wow. So is, is grace related to that in-group treatment? And then someone like that telling you the story is just, I mean, that's the ultimate out-group act. You're almost like defiling the yeah. species to some extent. Well, that's one of the reasons why we, we tend to take the enemy and we compare the enemy to vermin, to pestilence, mm-hmm. dumb, right? Because in order to make sure that we don't have any second thoughts about pulling a trigger or doing worse, we have to conceptualize the enemy as subhuman. That's one of the important point, points about going to war. You can see that it's a bad thing to do, but on the other hand, it's an effective thing to do if you want people to fight. 
So, yeah, I think that grace is some really important thing that we have to be less embarrassed uh, to talk about. We have to talk about grace in a context where it doesn't stem directly from Jesus Christ or, uh, you know, uh, Abraham's God or, or, mm -hmm. or whatever. We, we need to recognize that when we start thinking in certain terms, we've already lost the plot. Yeah, I'm reminded again, back to the earlier discussion around advertising and, you know, just spinning in general, spinning different uh, phenomenon to suit one's ends, or whether you're trying to represent the stimulus package or the, you know, the Michelob Ultra with all the beautiful women around. This seems like something that would... I mean, I guess in an ideal civilization, we would have kind of a universalized grace where it wouldn't be so much in-group, out-group. We could all, regardless of Isn't our nationality, weird? treat each other as human, something like that. A common enemy may be necessary, as you well know. And it may be that if the aliens show up and we become team human, um, that might work. It may be that the enemy is, you know, I think there's a memorial in Boston to firefighters. And if I recall correctly, then I may not. It conceptualizes fire as an enemy. Mm. You know, that fire was something that was plaguing the city way back when, when homes were made of wood and people lived close together and they didn't have good telecommunications. So the idea of taking on an inanimate, you know, there's this thing where you talk about the war on drugs. Mm. And at the first level, that feels like, right, yeah, we're going to declare war on drugs. And the second level, you say, that's so stupid. We're appropriating a war metaphor for something that isn't an enemy. What are we right. doing? And then one level deeper, you actually realize, no, no, no. You have to call it a war on drugs because war is the only thing that humans know how to instinctually do the right thing uh, surrounding. Mm. And so, yes, it doesn't really make sense, but you still have to call it the war on drugs because it's the word war and the feelings of war that call us to do something. And so it may be that we can only do this by creating an artificial enemy. And it may be that we can do this be, by becoming wise and kind. But in a minimum, we have to worry about grace lest we lose track of our humanity because this is something that we can do. We, we have the ability to reflect do I have the right to take my neighbor's house because I need it desperately? Is that sufficient to take over somebody else's life, to take over their property? And I think if you think about, you know, a libertarian perspective and non-initiation of force, mm -hmm. that's a sort of an encoded grace in, uh, in a secular libertarian context. Yeah, the, the non-aggression axiom, which is kind of the yin to the yang of self-defense. Um, I've long this sort of reminds me of William James that the American pragmatist talked about the moral equivalent of war. And he said we would never have we would never free ourselves of the horrors of war until we had some moral equivalent, some other channel to direct our competitive energies. And well, I've long sports, obviously. Yeah, sports to some extent, but I've long thought that, you know, entrepreneurship could be that we should like wage war on cost, you know, just 
make everything as abundant and more on stupidity. Yeah. Just, yeah. Well, I think we do some of that, but you know, it's at a certain level, you have all of these sort of team building exercises in corporate America that don't really work all that well, because when you take the element of risk out, things change. Mm -hmm. Like when you do a simulated, we're going to do zip lining and it's going to look scary, but everybody's going to be fine. Okay. Well, if everybody's going to be fine, maybe it doesn't work. Right. That's why there has to be a cougar in the car. Need risk of loss. Yeah. <laughs> cougar in the car. Or uh, Lucky Charms taped underneath the car. <laughs> what is that? Uh, Talladega Nights, Ricky Bobby. His dad's trying to train. You didn't see it? Oh, there's a cougar in the car in the movie. I thought that's what you were right. Well, no, I know, the, I know the scene, but it became a meme. And so the reason I was, I was oh. using it, I didn't see the whole film. I have seen the scene. You got to see the whole film. I don't know if it's a film. It's just a movie, but it's hilarious. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, th I, I do think that we, we need something more real. And I, mm -hmm. I think that the element of risk, you know, when you go rock climbing, it's fairly safe. Mm -hmm. It's not perfectly safe. You know, if, if, no. if you flew wingsuits with somebody, that would be sort of an equivalent of war because that's really dangerous. Mm -hmm. Squirrels to the fatality, I think in part because people get addicted to proximity flying or something. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you have to do something that has some actual real risk. It can't be simulated all the time. This is um, Taleb's concept of skin in the game, right? That we need decision makers that are connected to the consequences of their decisions. If it's separated or there's a safety net or there's some externalization of that cost of their decisions. The last one is the biggest issue. Yeah, systems collapse. Yeah. I don't know what to do about that because that's what we've done. We keep externalizing the consequences and risks of our action. Like the, when we had the conversation about non-recourse loans. Well, we used to have partnerships. Mm -hmm. You know, and if Solomon Brothers was a partnership um, and they had their own skin in the game, they behaved differently. When you know that Alan Greenspan was going to put a, a put underneath you, you, you behave differently. And so in some sense, the cost of going back to skin in the game seems enormous. So nobody wants to do it. So we're going to play musical chairs up until the point you can't externalize the cost. We'll probably end up with a revolution or something equivalent, which is really dumb. Agreed. Uh, you know, my optimistic and possibly biased perspective is that Bitcoin is going to impose this principle back on the system. Well, I, how do we make that happen? Because, the, the, you know, again, my, my chief couple of complaints with Bitcoin, not to excite the community, is that one, the uh, alternate coin problem is the softness of Bitcoin. In other words, the Bitcoin protocol allowed us to create all these alternate coins and tokens and that that is the softness that there may only be 21 million bitcoin but it's not only 21 million tokenized units of crypto and so that's why the bitcoin maximalists are really sort of like the anti-counterfeiting squad that are covering for the flaw in bitcoin which is that you can create an infinite number of coins 
And then you have the other problem, which is the stench of Bitcoin, which is your identity and your wallet may be anonymous, but the transactions are not. Now, the, the first point, I'd say there is one alternate view of that is that altcoins provide some smoke screen for Bitcoin in a way, you know, especially from the regulatory standpoint. They're busy pursuing all these projects and doing like that gave Bitcoin the cover to grow into what it is. Um, and I think the, the maximalist position on this would be that though other coin issuance is not dilutive to Bitcoin because of the strength of the social consensus around 21 million. And, and if you and, and if you and the price action proves it out, I mean, I know we're early, it's only 13 years in, but. 99.9% of these coins collapse in price in terms of Bitcoin over their life. So, you know, value keeps getting stored in the most reliably trust-minimized asset. Well, let me ask you a question. Assume that the Bitcoin maximalists didn't exist. Assume that the cyber hornets weren't there. Mm -hmm. Do you think the failure rate would be the same? Um. Because I'm not so sure. I think that if, if the Bitcoiners were pacifists, I don't like the cyber hornet phenomenon. I think it's indicative of a problem, but I do think it's load bearing. I don't think you can knock them out and still have everything work. You need to actively discourage people through pain the, in exploring the idea of counterfeiting tokens if you view bitcoin as the one true token yeah i i mean we could do it in this kind of isolated hypothetical world but i don't know that it's possible practically to separate the emergence of something like bitcoin from its culture you know it's almost like the people that adopt bitcoin their personal or cultural characteristics come to reflect the obstinacy of Bitcoin in some way, or like yeah. the character reflecting the coin. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if the, I'm sure the failure rate would, would uh, decrease absent Bitcoin maximalism, but I don't, I still think rational economic actors will choose to hold the money that is as immune to the opinions of others as possible. That's pretty much what gold was. And I think that's yeah. what Bitcoin is becoming. Well, here's, here's my counter argument. One, I think there's certain wishful thinking, which is we can't get rid of the altcoins. So we're going to decide that they're awesome because they transfer money and back into our system. Um, with respect to the Bitcoin thing, I look at what happened with Lex Fridman and he got stung by the Hornets. Mm -hmm. He was just shocked because he's like a nice guy. Everybody likes him. And suddenly, you know, like, oh, my God, you talk to Vitalik, you, you are Beelzebub. And you're just thinking, what? Yes, I had a conversation with Vitalik. What, what did I do to you? Did I, did I run over your grandmother? You know, did I sell puppies to Anthony Fauci? What, why are you so angry with <laughs> And um, I guess that's kind of what I think is, is that it's sort of like, chill out, dude. All I was doing was printing dollar bills on my home computer. They're just fun. And it's really high quality. It's, they're hard to tell the difference, which is what makes them fun. 
You think the government would be relaxed about that? They've got their own hornets and those hornets have guns, (laughs) right? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I think it's a very serious issue. And I wish you guys would take me seriously because I'm telling you, your hornets are load-bearing. Yeah. I don't think load-bearing hornets, by the way, to mix a metaphor (laughs) is a concept, but it needs to be. And I think that that I, I find them super annoying, but I find them structural. Yeah, and, and Lex, let me just get one point out. I think Lex is a good example of how they function. Lex could have been equally interested in all sorts of different tokens. But once he met the Hornets, I can't promise you that it had no effect on his proselytizing. So a lot of us have the calculation, I'm kind of interested in the space. And then one hornet encounter you're thinking like i don't really want to talk about that in public again uh-huh. that's how it's working yeah and it'll there, work until it doesn't there is definitely that type of effect where it can push some people away even even prominent people like lex or uh you know many others bitcoin maximalists would respond and i'm not putting myself in this camp by the way is I've, yeah. I've been stung and been through all that as well yeah. i think their general response is bitcoin doesn't care it's like eventually they'll have to buy bitcoin so it's just, there's this inevitability mindset right. if that's what your belief is then yeah. walk away from your hornet responsibilities for five years and watch the proliferation of new coins because i'll tell you something have you ever heard about uh like diversity equity and inclusion maximalists they don't have that as a word but when I ran a poll, would you prefer to have merit along with diversity, inclusion, and, uh, and equity, or a university that focuses exclusively on merit? 93% wanted no DEI. And it wasn't a question of DEI versus merit. It was merit plus DEI or only merit. Over 10,000 people responded. It's very hard to get 93%, even on an account that, you know, I, 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 I floated the question to um, prominent progressives, say, please, by all means, get your followers to respond to the poll. I don't want any bias. Which way was people the result? Really, Sorry. What? Which way was the result? People don't like DEI. Mm. But they, so- they can't say that. It's like, I'm against DEI. Oh, you don't like diversity because you want, like, only you're a white supremacist, or you don't want equity. You want like crushing inequality. You don't want inclusion. Who do you want to keep out? So nobody wants to say how much they dislike the DEI agenda because then their life fills up with, Oh, your friend, the white supremacist. Like that's the game. That's, that's the cyber hornets for DEI. Agreed with that. Agreed with the cultural extremism commonality there. But but doesn't merit cut through all of that? Like if you just optimize for merit, that's what I'm trying to say. Merit with... is a diversity, equity, and inclusion program. Yes, merit works to bring people in. I don't care if you're green. I don't care what right. you identify as. If you're the world's greatest mathematician, I want to listen to what you have to say. I don't care. Exactly. Right. But then somebody says, "No, no, we're going to impose something. We we don't have any queer Inuit people." Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. It's you know, with with with. Uh, conjoined twin status. So that's who your new professor of algebraic geometry is. And you're thinking, 
No, algebraic yeah. geometry has nothing to do with conjoined twins. Just go away. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, oh, you, you just don't like people who don't look like you. That hornetry, if you will, exists on everything. It exists on political parties. Try starting a third political party and you'll, you'll hear the Democrat and Republican binary hornets will come at you. Yeah. Or if, if you start to talk about um, any attempt to figure out what the CIA is doing, the anti-conspiracy theorist hornets will come at you. Right. Hornetry is how we keep people from asking questions, from exploring space. We make their lives a living hell. And it's very, really important that you guys understand this. I hate this, but I also am very sympathetic. It's not that it's an organic outgrowth. It's that there's a flaw in the protocol, which is the ability to mint new versions of this. You imagine, for example, that somehow you couldn't tell what was going on inside of Bitcoin because it wasn't open source. It was just like a binary that no one could crack. Then you'd have one example of the thing and people couldn't mint their own. The, we, it needs to be open source, though, to maximize its anti-fragility, right. actually. And, 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 and right, and, because it's going to encounter problems. And, yeah. and what, that's what I'm trying to say. So assume that there was a possibility, just as a thought experiment, a perfect coin that was released as a binary, nobody could see in, and no one was smart enough to figure out how it worked. There were 21 million tokens, and everything was fine. You wouldn't need hornetry. Right. You'd be trusting the black box, though. You'd be trusting the black box. Imagine, but, you know, think, think if there was some sort of a checksum system. I'm not clever enough to figure it out, but there are ways in which you can trust your binary through checksums without understanding your binary. Uh, so just imagine it for the moment. You guys are in a different position. You're trying to say... Bitcoin is just the best. And I think it's, it's utterly remarkable, but it's not without its flaws. And one of the flaws is the ability to implement new coins. So that has to be turned into, oh, actually that's a genius. It's a feature, not a bug. Okay, great. So it's a feature, not a bug. <laughs> and then, you know, we all know these, every time somebody finds a bug, you have to redefine it as a feature in order to decrease cognitive dissonance. <laughs> We're True. back to advertising. <laughs> back to advertising. Yeah. But there's components of truth. I mean, in general, an ad campaign isn't very effective if it's based on nothing other than deception. So most uh -huh. ad campaigns are a mixture of some percentage of deception with some percentage of information. Uh -huh. 